Well, we come this evening to the final one in this sermon series where we've been looking at love and sexuality and intimacy and friendship and marriage and singleness. And uh, really, we couldn't go through this sermon series and not tackle uh, the subject of same-sex attraction. Um, as, as Rich mentioned, uh, next weekend we're going to be celebrating uh, the fact that um, Kathy and I, uh, Josh, uh, was here. He was two uh, when we moved. He's now sitting his finals at, at university. Um, but he just had his second birthday um, about a week before we moved. Um, and we moved to Edinburgh. And we never thought that we would stay here this long. Um, but uh, it's been 20 years uh, since um, I began on the staff here at P's and G's. Obviously, I was one of the youngest clergy uh, people ever ordained, uh, age 10. Um, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a privilege, it really has been a privilege uh, to be here and uh, to, to help lead the church and um, just to, to go through the past 20 years. Um, and I was, I've been doing a lot of, sort of reflecting over the last uh, wee while as to what 1996 was like and, and how different it is now. Uh, my first Sunday uh, here was the day after uh, England had beaten Scotland at Euro 96. Um, I was left in no doubt that I could mention it once and once only and never again. Um, and 20 years later, I think it's safe to mention it for a second time. Uh, and we just about got through. But the world was a very, very different place. Um, in 1996, we were about to go into... Uh, a huge debate that went on for three or four years <coughs> over the repeal of what was called Clause 28. Um, those of you who are under the age of 20 won't know what this is, but Clause 28 was a particular part of the Local Government Act um, that meant it was illegal to promote homosexuality or same-sex relationships in state schools. And there was quite a bitter battle uh, that went on. Eventually it was repealed uh, in the Scottish Parliament in the year 2000. And if you reflect 20 years ago, that's where we were as a society and as a culture and as a nation. We have moved a long way in 20 years. If you just think back two or three weeks to the Holyrood elections, um, three out of five of the main party leaders are in same-sex relationships. So Labour and the Greens and the Conservative Party um, have leaders in same-sex relationships. Uh, the Secretary of State for Scotland down at Westminster, again a Conservative MP, um, is openly gay. Such things would have been unthinkable 20 years ago. Uh, that same-sex relationships would have moved right to the centre of our society and our culture. And the campaign that has been waged over the last 30, 35 years or so uh, by Stonewall and, and the lesbian and gay lobby has been phenomenally successful in, in changing public opinion and eventually changing the law itself. Uh, it was actually so successful a campaign um, that the Bible Society in England and Wales asked Stonewall to come in and advise them as to how they can conduct a successful campaign. Uh, so you had this sort of odd 
the sort of paradoxical juxtaposition of Stonewall uh, advising the Bible Society as to how to run a public campaign to change people's perception of people in a particular position. But we have therefore moved from illegality to same-sex marriage via civil partnerships in only 16 years. Now that is an incredibly quick social change. But right at the start, I want to acknowledge that this, for many people in the room tonight, is not a theoretical subject or a theoretical topic. Uh, this is no academic subject. Um, this goes to the very heart of, of some of who we are as human beings. It, it is about sexuality and identity, origins and happiness, intimacy and holiness, suffering and love. It's about relationships and theology. And if you know anything about church history, in particular the Anglican or Episcopal church that we belong to, this particular issue has dominated the Anglican church in Scotland and around the world for the last 20 years. And one of the unfortunate things that, that's happened is that as society has moved so quickly, the church has been having to do its thinking in public. And the church never does that well. Um, and any debate, any discussion, um, any online feature about what Christians think about same-sex relationships um, is portrayed um, in quite a, a hyperbolic way on, from different positions uh, and people feel passionately about it on different sides of the debate. Next week um, we have our General Synod, it's our equivalent of the General Assembly and the Scottish Episcopal Church, that's the denomination that we belong to, the, the Anglican Church um, in Scotland, uh, will be debating as to whether it will permit uh, clergy who want to, to conduct same-sex marriages, probably in just over a year's time. It's been going through a process uh, for about the last 12 years or so, talking and, and sharing with each other. And that debate will be passionate and it will be heated. On one side, just as there are here this evening, uh, there will be Christians who are more conservatively minded. <coughs> and they will be passionately concerned for the traditional view of marriage. They will be passionately concerned for what's called the Catholicity of the Church. Can the Episcopal Church, just by itself, redefine what marriage is? And what are the implications then for its relationships with other churches, both in Scotland and around the world? The Episcopal Church in America has already gone down this route and it's got a sort of yellow card. It's, it's been put in on the bench for a while uh, as some sanctions take place against the American Episcopal Church. And some people are concerned in the Scottish Church that the same thing uh, will happen uh, to the SEC. At the same time, those conservative Christians are passionately concerned for gay Christians within the Episcopal Church, within churches like P's and G's, and there are some of... Um, them here this evening, who have wrestled with same-sex attraction for the whole of their lives and have come to the conclusion as they have interpreted the Bible that God is calling them to be celibate, to be single and to abstain from sexual relationships and the same-sex relationships at all. 
So that is the debate on one side. Passionate, conservative Christians, concerned about the authority of the Bible, concerned about the nature of marriage, concerned about the Catholicity of the church, and not wanting to hurt or damage people who have lived for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, celibate single lives, because they have felt called to as they have listened to God. But then on the other side of the debate will be people who are equally passionate, more liberal, more affirming Christians, who, for whom it is a matter of justice and equality. They believe that it really comes down to equality and justice, that if two people love each other, then why wouldn't God want to bless that relationship? Why isn't the church allowed to perform a service, to perform a ceremony whereby it conducts a same-sex marriage? And the debate will come down to whether the state is perfectly entitled to define marriage however it wants, but can the church somehow redefine marriage? And can one denomination do so all by itself? And even within the gay communities, I've hinted already, there is no common mind. We, um, I have gay friends who are in a civil partnership who are passionately opposed to same-sex marriage. They're Christians, they're in a civil partnership, but they would say that marriage is for men and women and has nothing to do with them as two same-sex attracted blokes. There are other people within the Christian gay community who would take a very different stance. And what about P's and G's itself? Well, we are a church and we are a normal church and therefore to the surprise of many, we have a huge variety of views and a huge variety of experience. We have gay people who are in partnerships. We have gay people who are celibate. We have parents whose adult children have come out. Some people who are happy to acknowledge that their adult children have come out as lesbian or gay. And some people who've really struggled with the fact that their adult children have come out as lesbian and gay. And then we have younger people under the age of about 25 who look at me like a dinosaur and think, why is the church talking about this? The culture and the society that they have grown up with regards same-sex attraction and same-sex relationships and civil partnerships and marriage as normative. And they think it very surprising that the church is still devoting so much time to a subject like this. So what are we going to cover this evening? Well, I think the first thing to say is that as we look back over the last 20 years and this enormous social shift that Britain, Scotland has gone through, this has not been the church's finest hour. Um, and I want to apologise to those of you who have struggled with this issue, for whom it is a deeply, deeply personal issue, those of you who struggled with same-sex attraction, those of you um, who would identify as lesbian or, or gay, for when you have felt judged, for when you have felt rejected, for when you have felt condemned, when you have experienced or suffered homophobic behaviour or attitudes, perhaps from me or perhaps from other people in the church. The reality is that when we come to this debate, when we come to this subject, the church has fallen far, far short 
on the standards that Jesus expected. And indeed the standard that Jesus himself demonstrated. One of the reasons that I wanted that particular passage read this evening was just for that final verse. That final verse in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that has that incredibly simple yet profoundly complex description of who Jesus is. Jesus full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. The reality is that in this debate, in this discussion, people on both sides of the divide have been very, very quick and very, very strong and very, very passionate to argue about truth. And as they've argued about truth, they have often failed to demonstrate grace. God's unconditional acceptance. God's amazing, boundless, remarkable, generous love that he offers to every single human being. And whatever you may think of this particular subject, whichever side you may sit on this particular topic, the one thing I think we can all agree on tonight is that the church has not demonstrated enough grace to each other. I remember a debate in our diocesan synod, uh, probably 12, 14 years ago, that was just mean, it was ugly, it was aggressive, there was name-calling, and it didn't resemble a gathering of Christians. And the bishop at the time said, never again. We will never again talk about this subject in this particular way. And in fact, even with a successor, we never have. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we need to ensure that when we talk about this subject, that one of the things that characterises not just what we say, but the way in which we say things, that we do it with grace and with truth. Remember talking to a retired bishop, uh, Graham Dow, who was the Bishop of Carlisle, and he said, the problem, Dave, is you and I belong to the evangelical part of the church, and we've, we've used truth a bit like hand grenades, sort of been there in the trenches and chucked it over, have a bit of truth, boom. Have a bit of truth. Boom. Have a bit of truth. And then we've ducked down into the trenches. But this discussion, above all, requires us to leave the trenches. It requires us to talk face to face. It requires us to look into the eyes of people with whom we will passionately disagree and not talk about them, but talk to them and to listen to them as well. So again, if you've ever felt the effects of a lack of grace in this or in another church, then I want to say that I'm sorry and I apologise for what the church has done and said in the name of Christ. The second thing to say is that we can agree on many things. There are many things that whatever side of the debate uh, we sit on, all Christians would want to say 
we're against these things. So we're against, for example, homosexual prostitution. We're against homosexual promiscuity. We're against a lifestyle that still happens, sadly, where a group of men, gay men, will get together and will hire a house for the weekend and will have what is known as a chemsex orgy. They will use drugs to artificially keep themselves going, to enjoy and have more and more sex with each other. We're against pedestry, which is when um, an older person uses a younger person for sexual purposes. We're against pornography, as we looked last week. We're against casual or recreational sex, whether it's homosexual, whether it's lesbian, or indeed whether it's heterosexual, recreational or casual sex. We're against sexual acts designed to demonstrate dominance of one person over another. Now, it would be very easy tonight to start to play biblical ping-pong. Um, the sheet that was given to you as you came in, hopefully you got one, a handout, that has all the references uh, to same-sex relationships and same-sex sex in both the Old and the New Testament. There are Genesis, Ezekiel, Judges, Leviticus in the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, Acts and Romans um, in uh, the New Testament. There are those key Greek words, malakoi, now used for this translation um, for homosexual, but a word that actually wasn't used in English before 1869 and is particularly disliked by the LGBTQ community. Um, there's that Greek word arsenokoite, again, not found in any Greek text before 1 Corinthians. Some people would say that it's the equivalent of Leviticus 18, uh, where uh, lying with a man is prohibited. But the question is, is what the Bible is talking about, is that what is happening and is being promoted in our society today? When it comes to the question as to what did Jesus say about same-sex relationships, well, the answer is quite simple on one level. He said nothing. He did affirm heterosexual marriage, Matthew 19, verses 3 to 12, and Mark 10, verses uh, 4 to 9. He frequently spoke about porneia, uh, sexual immorality or fornication, i.e. any sex out with heterosexual marriage. But what I've done is, is put down a list of resources there uh, for you to do your own work. What I'm not going to do this evening is give you a definitive answer to this question. Um, what I want to do is share with you some of the thinking and some of the reading and some of the praying that I've done over the last 30 years and simply share with you where I am at the moment, uh, where I am on this particular journey. And as I say that, I know that it's going to disappoint some of you. It will disappoint some of you at the more conservative wing, and it will disappoint some of you at the more liberal wing. And if I can disappoint people at both ends of the spectrum equally, I've done a good job. Um, because all I want to do, and that's the reason for sort of sitting on a stool and having a chat, is I want to have a chat with you. Because I want to share with you where the church is, i.e. the Episcopal Church, where we as a church as P's and G's are, and also where I am personally. Because as I have read and thought about this, and read numerous books, and I think I've got about 25 books on my bookshelves 
that have been written in the last 30 or 40 years about this particular subject. And I can point you to some of the same books on that handout that will look at exactly the same biblical texts and come to exactly contradictory conclusions and answers. The basic thing is to say that we need to operate with grace and truth because there is some uncertainty as to what Scripture perhaps does teach. Because for me, it's come down to one fundamental question. Is Scripture, Old and New Testament, outlawing all, prohibiting all, same-sex practice? Or is what is now being proposed, i.e. committed, faithful, same-sex relationships, so different in quality as to be something very, very different and indeed unheard of and unimagined by the people who were both in the Old Testament and people who were in the New Testament. And I want to share the conclusions of one particular book that I read um, just three weeks ago. And it's the book at the third section where it talks um, about a third way. This is a book um, called A Letter to My Congregation by a church leader called Ken Wilson. Now, Ken Wilson leads a vineyard church in Ann Arbor in Michigan. And he's agonized over this particular question for about 35 years. And for him, coming from a, a conservative background, even a, a more conservative background than mine, he's come to the conclusion as to suggest whether there is a third way possible for what he would characterize as, as two binary positions. So on one hand, there's the, the more liberal position, what he calls the just say yes position. The position that would say, it's okay, anybody can be in any relationship that they want. As long as it's committed, as long as it's faithful, then scripture does allow for same-sex committed relationships. So churches that would come into this position would often use the term inclusive, they would use the term accepting, they would use the term open, they would use the term welcoming, and they would have that particular word quite prominent on their church website. And they would want to be known as an open, inclusive, welcoming church. Paradoxically, they would identify as such and say that anybody who is not like them is not open and welcome and inclusive and accepting. They would be unaccepting in their acceptance. They would be illiberal in their liberalism. And believe me, it exists even in Scotland. So that's the just say yes position. On the other hand, Wilson says, there's the just say no position. And uh, a really good book um, by uh, a guy called Ed Shaw called The Plausibility uh, Factor. Um, a guy, Ed, is a, an Anglican vicar down south who's lived with same-sex attraction uh, all his life but has come to the position uh, where he believes that God is calling him uh, to be celibate. And about four or five years ago now, uh, him and uh, a group of, of guys um, who have all struggled with same-sex attraction, um, some of whom are celibate and some of whom are now 
uh, in heterosexual marriages, they, they set up a website called Living Out uh, because they believe that God is calling them to call the church to purity and to holiness in this particular way that they have interpreted the Bible, the more traditional and orthodox uh, way. But Ed Shaw himself would agree with Ken Wilson and say that what he would characterize as the just say no position actually is not good enough. So here you have Ken Wilson saying that the just say yes position isn't satisfactory, but neither, as does Ed Shaw, say that the just say no position, that isn't satisfactory either. And what Wilson says is that perhaps there is a third way. For him in his book, A Letter to My Congregation, he writes about the distinction between three things, dogma, doctrine, and opinion. And the first thing that he describes as dogma is as defined by a, an evangelical Baptist theologian from Texas called Professor Roger Olson. And Olson defines dogma as the things that are essential to Christianity, the truths that are vital to Christianity itself. So facts, beliefs around the identity of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his second coming. And, and Olson and then Wilson would also say that if you change these fundamental truths, if you deny the birth, virgin birth, if you deny the life, if you deny the death, if you deny the resurrection, if you deny the ascension, if you deny the second coming of Jesus, then what you are creating is something other than Christianity. These are the essential truths of Christianity that cannot be changed. And dogma is found in the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but it's also to be found in, in what are called the historic creeds of the church, the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed, the creeds of the early church. When the early church was trying to, to figure out what it should believe, how it, it could define, how God could be... Um, both fully God, how Jesus could be fully God and fully human, how God could be up there and down here and in us all at the same time, it came up with, with the creeds. Interestingly, it took 100 years or so to come up with the creeds. Again, evidence that the church does not do its thinking in public well or quickly because the people who eventually settled on the Nicene Creed were the great-grandchildren of the people who originally met to form the Council of Nicaea. Um, so to try and expect the church to get its act together over sexuality in 20 years, that's a big ask, because it took us over 100 years to figure out who Jesus was. So that's, that's dogma, essential truths. And then Olson and Wilson say, then the next level down are, are what we're going to call doctrine. And those are, if you like, um, a secondary category of teachings central to a particular tradition of Christianity. So you might have Calvinistic Christians who believe strongly in, in predestination, or what are called Arminian Christians who believe fundamentally in free will. And Calvinistic Christians will emphasize predestination, and Arminians will emphasize free will. You've got beliefs around the nature of the church. We're an Episcopal church. You have Presbyterians, you have Baptists, 
You have Roman Catholics, you have Orthodox, you have Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, all with different beliefs about the structure of a church and the governance and, and ministry and leadership. You have disagreements about the work of the Holy Spirit. You have more reformed Christians. You have charismatic Christians. You have people who will say one thing about water baptism. So you have to be believed, baptised as an adult or as a believer. Um, so we're an Anglican church, we're an Episcopal church, so, so, so we believe something. We believe about infant baptism. and We, we say to Baptists, you know, you can baptise your way, we'll baptise God's way. Um, that's a joke, by the way. I, I used to be a Baptist. But we disagree about stuff like that. And then there's this third category that Olson and Wilson say, where it's just opinion. Where there are different judgments about stuff. It might be around topics such as creation or evolution. The mode of baptism, i.e. how much water should be used. Should you be sprinkled or immersed? Or the criteria for ordination, or perhaps the role of women in the church or in leadership. And Wilson, in his book, wonders whether committed and faithful same-sex relationships might not fall into the third category. So rather than dogma or doctrine, then it comes down to opinion. And might it be an issue, as Paul outlines, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 14 and 15, where Christians neither affirm and I hope don't reject gay people, but simply accept one another. In Romans uh, chapter 15 and verse 7, Paul says, accept one another as Christ accepts you. And what Wilson goes on to argue in that particular book is to say, here is an issue, here is a topic where Christians disagree. And can we get to the point where we simply accept one another and accept that we will disagree about this particular issue? We disagree, for example, about whether divorcees can remarry. Might we come to a similar position on same-sex relationships? Now, I have to be honest and say, I don't know, I'm not sure, I'm still to be convinced. In some ways, it appeals. It would be a lot easier if that were the case. At the moment, for me, marriage does remain between a man and a woman. I, at the moment, couldn't conduct a same-sex marriage, even if the Episcopal Church votes this week to allow me, if I wanted to, to be able to do so from this time next year. But I do respect the fact that there are clergy in the Episcopal Church who both want to and feel able to and even the quality and commitment of some of you who are in gay relationships is both an example and a challenge to me and to my thinking. But for me, as I have read and studied, prayed and listened over the last 30 years, the reality I've come to is that there is a spectrum of sexuality. And simple definitions, perhaps, are not helpful. We're all broken people to one degree or another. Some of us are better than others at hiding that, but the reality is that when it comes down to sexuality, we're all somewhere on a spectrum. And it does increasingly strike me as odd that the church highlights same-sex 
relationships as a sin, and seemingly a sin above any other sin. You see, when people come forward for communion, Rich or Libby or James or myself, as we're giving out communion, we don't say to you, can you just tell me whether you've gossiped this week or not? Can you show me your income tax return so that we can see whether you've fiddled the inland revenue or not? Can you tell us how many times this week you've thought ill of the person who's next to you? Yes, the person next to you right now. Have you ever thought wrong motives? Ever been jealous about somebody? Why do we highlight one particular sin above any other sin, if indeed it is still a sin? For those at either end of the debate, it will not be enough. Conservatives will want to say that that is a compromise on the authority of scripture and the traditional view of marriage. At stake for them is the salvation of some people. For them, it is, and a, a really good colleague that I know who leads another Episcopal church, for him this is a salvation issue. People's salvation stands or falls on whether they are in a same-sex relationship or not. And certainly for those at the more conservative wing, the health of the church itself is at stake. Again, this third way is not very acceptable for the liberals, particularly the illiberal liberals. For them, it's an unjust cop-out that falls far short of equal marriage. For them, anything short of equal marriage will continue to relegate gay people as second-class Christians within the church. But increasingly, I'm thinking, well, maybe it's a way ahead. Maybe it's a position where we can say we disagree with each other. But we disagree in love. We disagree generously. We disagree gracefully. And we disagree graciously. Believing the best in the other person rather than the worst. And believing that we may lose the argument, but we won't lose the person. Sexuality, as we've looked at in these previous weeks, is a precious gift from God. But it is also very complex. Sexuality is not a binary issue, I believe, where people are either gay or straight. But as I said, it's a spectrum. Our sexuality is part of our identity, but it is not our identity. It's part of who gay God made us to be. But our primary identity is in what and who God thinks we are and who we are in Christ, as we sang the words to in Christ alone. That is where our primary identity comes from. It's what Jesus, what God thinks about us and who we are in Christ. As we've looked at over previous weeks, God made us for relationships. But those are relationships, whatever we may think about same-sex or heterosexual relationships or about marriage or about singleness. Those are relationships that need to be helpful and holy, loving and committed. God said it is not good for man to be alone. And that, remember, was before the fall. We are made for intimacy. We are made for friendship. We are made to give and receive love. We are made to reflect the very heart of the Trinity itself. 
where we see self-preferential, serving, outrageous, unconditional love. From the Father to the Son, to the Son to the Spirit, from the Spirit to the Father. Where mutually subservient, unconditional and accepting love characterise the heart and character of God himself and which we get to glimpse in each other. I don't know where you stand on this particular issue. I don't know whether what I've said is helpful or has been more confusing. But all I've tried to do this evening is share where I am at this point and where we are working towards as a church. It's not simple, it's not straightforward, but it involves real people with real feelings who are desperate to do what God wants them to do. Rich is going to lead us in a time of prayer and response.